Turn, if you would, to Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the whole chapter this morning. We read a long chapter in um, 1 Corinthians. Chapter 7 was a long chapter, but I'm going to read this whole chapter, and, and then we're just going to look at a small portion of this, um, because I want to understand the importance of what Paul is instructing Titus, particularly with regards to elders, and not just for the church at Crete, um, But these things, when attended to properly, have ramifications for all Christian churches, even for us today. So Titus chapter 1 says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may, able to, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Let's just pray one more time. Father, what we need today, I pray that you would give us. I pray that you would feed us from your word. Help us to see and understand um, what you would have for us today, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to give you an example of why appointing elders in every church, a plurality of elders, as we're going to see today, I want to give you an example of why appointing elders in every city, as Paul says, is so important to the life and health of the church. Listen to a recent news article, okay? Canadian police press charges against all six elders of Trinity Bible Chapel in Breslau, Ontario, 
for holding services last Sunday, actually two weeks ago, December 27th. All six elders must now appear in criminal court where they could face a fine of $10,000 each. So here was the church's response. Quote, We're a peaceful family. We are peaceful family men seeking to pastorally care for our families and our church in sincere obedience to God. We are not criminals. Officers from the Waterloo Region Police Service showed up at each of our homes last night at roughly 8 p.m. and gave us each a summons to court. While other pastors in Ontario have faced similar charges under the Reopening Ontario Act for holding church services, to our knowledge, this is the first time that each and every member of an entire elder board has been charged for gathering a church to worship. Although we know of officers within the police service who personally disagree with these charges, it appears the police service is trying to make an example of us. For years, we have taught our children to respect police, and now our children and grandchildren are witnesses to their fathers and grandfathers receiving charges from police for worshiping Christ with our church. It is a dark day for Waterloo Region and Ontario. The church went on to say that not a single COVID-19 case had been traced back to them since they reopened in June. They also detailed how the church, um, uh, keeping the church open has been important to their community. So they said this, Instead, we have heard a plethora of stories from many of our congregants about how they were negatively affected spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and financially during the first lockdown. Then on December 3rd, um, the church sent a letter to authorities stating that they would not shut down again due to the rise of COVID cases. And the title of that letter was, Here We Stand, The Church Must Meet. Quote, Not one of our officials replied with an attempt to work with us. Our church community has become a vital refuge for hundreds of people during these times of despair. Our government is destroying our society to prevent the spread of a virus with a fraction of a fractional death rate. This is evil. The church then warned authorities of the cyclical nature of history. They said, We have ancestors who fought in wars to protect us from state abuses of this nature. And many of our families fled police states that eerily resemble what we are being subjected to at the present. Our high school teachers, parents, and grandparents warned us against governments that act this way. Their statement later went on to say this, Our Savior shed his blood to purchase the church. And therefore, deeming the church unessential is tantamount to deeming the body or the blood of Christ unessential, which is a public act of blasphemy. One day, our elected officials, bureaucrats, and police will stand before the court of God's justice for these acts. We earnestly pray that the Holy Spirit would draw them to his Son, Jesus Christ, who offers free grace and forgiveness to all who would repent and put their faith in him. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and therefore we must honor and obey him above all earthly governments. So the church sent a letter to their local magistrates explaining to them that they were, they were going to continue to meet when the, lock, uh, the lock, local lockdown first resumed on December 26th, so just a few weeks ago. Then they met on the 27th, and each elder of the church received a summons with a potential fine of up to $10,000 for each of them. And then the church met on January 3rd, the next Sunday. And on January 8th, just this past Friday or Friday ago, 
the church posted this update on its website. Quote, This week, two pastors of Trinity Bible Chapel received two charges each for violating the Reopening Ontario Act on January 3rd, 2021. An additional pastor, three additional elders, and the church itself received one charge each for violating the Reopening Ontario Act on the same date. Each personal charge carries a maximum fine of $100,000 and one year in jail, while the charge to the church as an institution carries a maximum fine of $10 million if convicted. This is all for gathering a congregation to worship Christ in obedience to Scripture. Now, I want you to forget about that story, okay? I don't want you to dwell on that story because I'm about to preach from God's Word, and that's what I want you to hear. But I want you to understand the importance of elders. And I also want you to notice that I did not pull an example of elders and pastors taking their stand to protect their church. I didn't pull that example from Reformation-era church history. I could have. I didn't pull that example from the time of the Puritans. I could have. I pulled this example from last week, a currently unfolding event in Canada and an event that's not isolated. I would venture to guess that there are many pastors who desperately want to um, assemble with the church to worship, and yet they don't have an elder board that would support them like, th like this, or they don't have an elder board at all, or they have a bishop somewhere in a home office telling them no. I would also venture to guess that there were many um, church members, saints, who are desperate to meet. And yet, out of fear, their leaders would prefer to meet virtually, which is a synonym for not meeting at all, or to use the biblical phrase, neglecting to meet together. When we consider the spiritual health of a local church, we can clearly see, even from recent headlines, the importance of following Christ's pattern and instructions regarding the church, regarding discipleship. So let me put this together. Jesus himself made the promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he said to the apostles, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then here in the letter to Titus, he gives practical instruction through the pen of the apostle Paul. He gives practical instruction as to how this all discipleship all works out in the life of the church. So, so let me review the letter really, really briefly. Paul has now introduced himself in the first verse, first couple of verses. He has stated his purpose for writing for the sake of the faith, knowledge, and godliness of the elect, which he has explained for the benefit of those under Titus's charge. And he writes this with a, with a humble authority. And he addresses Titus, his spiritual son, and he gives his customary blessing, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And now he gets straight to the point. This is why I left you on Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so this is a letter of ecclesiology, 
That is, the nature, structure, and mission of the church. So for the past couple of weeks, I've been reminding you that this is a letter about discipleship. And this is true. And now the important thing to see, in fact, this is vital that we understand this, the important thing to see is that according to the scriptures, discipleship primarily takes place in the context of the local church. I'm going to say that again. According to the scriptures, discipleship primarily takes place in the context of the local church. Not a parachurch ministry, not me and Jesus in a tree stand, not a, not a Bible college, the local church. Now, as an aside here, I, because I want to be really clear, I'm not saying that the church replaces the authority and responsibility of the Christian family. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the Christian family is under the umbrella of the church. The Christian family is not independent of the church, but is a part of it, a vital part of the church. So as we put all of this together, because discipleship is not about behavior modification, act this way, not that way, it's about conforming to the image of Christ. And to conform to the image of Christ, we therefore, to summarize, must love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength and all our mind, and love our neighbor as ourself, as Christ did. You can see where God's good and perfect law fits into this, right? So therefore, discipleship is about worship, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's about being conformed to the image of Christ. And, and as I said, this is a, this is a letter of ecclesiology, a, a letter of the, the nature and structure and mission of the church. And Paul starts the leadership. And in starting here, in, in establishing the leadership of the church in this way, we can clearly see that the household of God is to be well-ordered. What we're talking about today and next week, Lord willing, is the, the leading office of the church with its characteristics, its competence, its character, and its commitment. We need to start with an overview of this office itself, the office of the church. As Paul writes this letter... He's laying another building block for the household of God. And that phrase, that, think of that metaphor, the household of God. I'm using that intentionally because it's Paul's own phrase from another letter that he wrote. I read the whole passage last week. Let me just read a, a portion of it today. It's from Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this to the church. He says, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined and held together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so from alongside uh, from this and alongside the rest of Scripture, we can glean the, the patterns and, and guidelines that should be taken as normal for the church, including the teaching that the church has two official and formal offices leading, the office of elder and deacon. Uh, yesterday, Ben mentioned this briefly in Sunday school at the very beginning, but yesterday we got together with um, I think there were four churches represented here, and the men got together, and we had a workshop on deaconing. And God, in his providential timing, um, 
put me preaching here in Titus chapter 1 on elders the same weekend. So some of the guys are getting this kind of in both barrels this morning, but we're going to be focused on elders. We believe the elders have been given the authority and responsibility to rule and to teach and deacons to serve. And yet, as we can clearly see in this letter, Paul is more concerned with establishing here on Crete the office and explaining the office of elder. And within the office of elder, there are other titles that are sometimes used. Um, In fact, just in this passage, there are three. Um, But there's another one that I want to mention today because it is also, it's actually the most common, and it's implied throughout this. But the first title that I want us to see is the title elder itself. Look again at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament, an elder was a title that is associated with maturity. The Hebrew people were familiar with elders, for example. Going as far back as the Old Testament Mosaic law, elders were a critical part of the leadership of the people of God. So, for example, it was the elders who would sit at the city gates and judge disputes and sometimes even carry out justice. I'm going to give you just one example from the Mosaic Law, from God's law, though there are many examples. But Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 11 and 12 says this. This is part of the law. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, cities of refuge, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Now that's an extreme example, but it shows the authority and the responsibility of these elders in, in ruling and protecting their community, even in that case in carrying out a death sentence for a murderer. I said it's an extreme example, but this is how the elders helped to rule the people of God in the Old Testament. The Greek word, I I try not to pull out too many Greek words, but the Greek word for elder here is presbyteros. Um, This is where the Presbyterians get their name. They're an elder-led church. That's one of their distinctives. Why their name is Presbyterian is because they're an elder-led church. And so in that sense, and only in that sense, we're a Presbyterian church in the sense that we are elder-led. So we believe that the office of elder is charged with leading and ruling in a church. And I'm using that word ruling specifically. We're going to get to that in just a moment. The second word um, that is seen even in this passage and is a synonym for elder is the word overseer. It's down in verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now this word should, it would strike those who are uh, more of a Greek background as a familiar concept. So if the elder was familiar to the Jewish people, overseer was more common among the Greeks. But rather than the office itself, the word overseer is more of a description of the type of work that an elder does. He oversees. Now the Greek word for that is episkopos. Now obviously that's where the Episcopalians get their name. Um, 
If you have a King James Bible, you might see the word bishop there instead of overseer. And the reason for that is that bishop is actually an old English word that uh, has come to mean, we don't use this word anymore, we go back with overseer because this old English word bishop has come to mean something that we don't actually believe that it means. It's come to be another office of the church. A bishop is often seen as someone who is higher than the elders, higher than the pastor, somebody who works in a home office somewhere. This is what the Episcopalians, as well as some other denominations, actually believe. Essentially, that the rule of the church is done by a bishop, and that bishop might oversee a whole area with multiple churches. The problem with that view is that Paul is clearly using these two terms, elder and overseer, as synonyms. In fact, he uses them interchangeably even in other writings that he does, in 1 Timothy, for example. So we believe the Bible is clearly teaching here that an overseer is one who oversees. It's part of the work of an elder. In fact, in some churches, and I actually think this is very helpful, some churches have ruling elders and teaching elders, or they have lay elders, unpaid volunteer elders, and vocational elders. And they get this idea from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 7, or verse 17 rather, which says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the, the concept there is that there are ruling elders who are generally volunteers. They're elders from the congregation who lead and rule in that sense, in the sense of um, deciding disputes sometimes, in the sense of setting direction and general leadership in the church. They rule in that way. They're doing the work of overseeing the ministry of the local church. And then there are the teaching elders who are typically paid, they're typically trained to do the bulk of the teaching and preaching and the day-to-day pastoring, 1 Timothy 5.17. But I want to be very clear is that while there may be some distinctions within the office, uh, within the role of elders, there's one office, and every elder is called to, in the Apostle Peter's words, in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Right there in that passage, the elder is called to do two things. He's called to shepherd the flock of God. That's the word pastor. He's called to pastor the flock of God, and he's called to oversee, to exercise oversight, to rule well. So we believe that the office of leadership in the church is the office of elder, And that the elders are to do the work of overseeing and pastoring, shepherding. But there's one other title in this passage, and I want to be interesting to know if you notice this title. It's one that we often miss. Look at verse 7 again. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. God's steward. This is really a further description of the work of an elder. A steward is, is a, it's a household manager. 
He's often sort of the, the chief of the servants, the one who is in charge of the household, the one who is tasked with managing, in this case, the household of God. So in the ancient world, the steward was entrusted with the key to the master's house. Not just anybody was given the key, but the steward, the one who was in charge, the household manager, was entrusted with the key to the master's house. That key gave him authority. It gave him authority both at the door and with the checkbook. He protected the house and paid the bills. He took care to be to be sure that the household had what it needed to operate and that it was safe and secure. It locked the door when intruders were charging, right? The steward was the one who stood at the door and had the key. Likewise, elders have been given the keys to the kingdom. They've been entrusted by Christ with certain and specific authority. Jesus even uses that phrase. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He uses that in Matthew 16. So to put it simply, elders are entrusted by Christ to grant admission to his church to believers. We do this through baptism. And elders are also charged to guard the purity of the church, and we do this through the Lord's Supper. So if you are not a believer, if you're an unbeliever, if you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, you shouldn't participate in the Lord's Supper. We're asking you not to because God is asking you not to until you become, until you believe. And then finally, as we see as this chapter one really continues here, um, and really as chapter two opens, we also see this in First and Second Timothy throughout those two letters especially. Elders are instructed to minister God's grace through prayer and the word. Specifically the word here, Titus 2, 1, which is why I read this verse in connection with the rest. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And I just want you to be sure that you see what, what Paul's concern here is in this, in all of this. He is concerned, he's, as he says in verse 5, put what remained into order. Paul's concern, Scripture's concern, is for well-ordered churches. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, after a whole long passage about uh, gathered and assembled worship and how it is to be done, he summarizes by saying this, but all things should be done decently and in order. The Bible knows nothing of a Lone Ranger-style Christianity. Rather, we are called by Jesus himself to make disciples, and the Bible is teaching us here how this is to be done within the structure of the church as we grow into a holy temple of the Lord. Now, let's look at three characteristics of the office of elder that we can clearly see here in Paul's letter to Titus. Three characteristics. Look at verse 5 again says this, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Elders in every town, he says. Notice the, the plurality there. From the very beginning of the church, there have always been a group of men who have been chosen to lead God's people. The apostles themselves the 11, and then Matthias joined them, the 12, and there were a few more that joined them. They governed, they ruled as a plurality. 
We can see this, this plural, plural nature of even the apostles in places like Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted, they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles, plural, teaching. And the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves, the saints devoted themselves to the teaching of all of the apostles. Or in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, again describing the early church. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' plural feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. They were taking care of one another. Later, as the gospel spreads and the churches are established, they were established with a, a group, a plurality of elders. Paul calls for the Ephesian elders, plural again, to come and meet with him in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, for example. But I think one of the most interesting um, examples of this, and it shows us the need for this, is in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, there's an event that takes place that is sometimes called the Jerusalem Council. This is the first ecumenical council of the church, the first time Several churches uh, come together to make a big decision. Turn over there for just a moment. Acts chapter 15. I'm not going to read this chapter, but it's a fascinating look at the early church. But in verse 1, the problem is laid out. Verse 1 says this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, so brothers and sisters there, they were teaching the brethren, the saints, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the problem. The way to solve the problem is seen in verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, in other words, it was a huge dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So the argument then is laid out from verses 3 down through verse 12, really. But in this context, the most interesting development, I think, is found when when James speaks in verses 13 through 21. But just look at the first couple words of verse 19. So James is speaking. He's addressing this council of apostles and elders. And James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And then in verse 22, this council, which is made up of apostles and elders... And then the whole church agreed to the solution. What is most interesting is that there are already elders. And this is very early. By this time in church history, Paul has, maybe he's written Galatians, but he hasn't written anything else probably. Certainly he has not written Titus yet. He's not written to Timothy. And while it seems likely that James is the leader of this council, in fact, I believe that he was sort of the senior pastor in Jerusalem. The apostles have scattered. They've gone out into the world to preach the gospel. 
James stays and shepherds the flock of God that is left behind in Jerusalem. Persecution comes in in Acts chapter 6, spreads the church out again through the ends of the earth. James stays and, and shepherds the flock that is probably hiding from persecution in the city of Jerusalem. James stays. He's not even an apostle, by the way. He doesn't have apostolic authority in that sense. But what is really clear about all of this is that even though James seems to make a judgment there, seems to be leading them, it's clear that all of them have a voice and a so-called vote in the matter. In other words, these men are all coming together. They're making difficult decisions together, and they're leading together, and they come to an agreement together. And one more important example of this and the importance of elders, one that's often, I think, misunderstood It's from Matthew chapter 18. It's just verses, I just want to read verses 17 through 20. Jesus is teaching in that passage on church discipline, on holding one another accountable. And he he says this about a sinning church member. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now that last statement is not about how it's okay to go to church in a coffee shop. That's often how we hear it, you know. It's about the elders of a church coming together as a plurality, as a group, and making the very difficult decision to use the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom, to remove an unrepentant sinner from their midst. To proclaim to that sinner, we can no longer affirm that you're a Christian because you are not repenting of your sin. Given the serious nature of sin, the serious nature of church discipline, Christ established his church to be led by a plurality of elders for the sake of the purity of the church's witness. And I, to that, I say, thank God. I hope that you understand how important this is for the church. I hope that you understand how important it is to me as a pastor to know that if we make a decision like those in Ontario had to make, we made the same decision. We're going to meet. Thank God we live in a state that they have not come down upon us for that. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ who don't live that far from here who are being told, do not meet or we will find your church Ten million dollars. That, that closes a church. That destroys a church. And those elders are standing firm. So thank God. The second characteristic of church elders are not only are they a plurality, is there a group of them, but actually they're to be local. In every town, Paul writes. Now, we can take this, this idea of a plurality of uh, local uh, elders, we can take it in a couple of different ways. First, they ought to be locals. We could take it that way. 
They should be brought up from within the local church. Now, what that doesn't mean is that their grandmother had to have been a member of this church if in order for them to be an elder. That's not what that means. It means that the, that the elders ought to be um, a part of the church and appointed from within the church. It means the elders should be named from within, especially, especially the, the ruling elders, especially the overseers. So the teaching elders might need to come from outside the church, like Titus and Timothy were sent by Paul, meaning that those who labor at teaching and preaching, they ought to be properly trained and so able to rightly handle the word of truth. In fact, this is more important, the fact that men are rightly trained in, or, or able to handle the word of truth is more important than the fact that they're local. Thank God for that one too. I grew up in New Hampshire. Yet the goal is... As he says in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, he says this, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's training up local elders from within the church. Not everybody will become elders, obviously. But the training up faithful men who will be able to teach, do the work of eldering others also. So what we're seeing in Titus is the church being sent a faithful elder, Titus. And that faithful elder, Titus, is going to train up local faithful elders from within the local church to be able to teach others also, which is the goal, which is discipleship, right? The other thing that this does, the other way that we could look at this is not only are they from the local church, but it also decentralizes leadership. There's no home office besides here. We're local. So we don't answer to a church in Rome we don't answer to a church in Canterbury. We don't answer to a church in Louisville or anywhere else. We believe that since Jesus Christ is the head of the church and he has established his churches to be led and ruled by elders, therefore, the Bible necessarily teaches the autonomy of the local church. That means we own this building. That means we, the church, chooses the officers we decide what to do with the finances, what missionaries to support, etc., etc., all of which must be informed and regulated by God's Word and led by the Holy Spirit. So we believe that the Bible is clear that the best way to lead and rule and shepherd and steward this church is through a plurality of elders, both overseers and pastors, who are deeply connected to and seeking the good of this specific household of God. And then there's one more characteristic of elders that I'm going to hit today. Then we're going to come back to it again next week and get into it a little bit more as we look at their, the elders' competence, character, and commitment. If I had an extra hour, I would just do two sermons in one today, but you, you probably wouldn't stand for that. Because it is important not to separate the work of the elder from the character qualifications of an elder. Um, and that's my point there. But the third uh, characteristic of elders is that the biblical design for church elders is male. This is clearly exclusive. Look at verse 6. Let me read 5 and 6 again. Titus 1, 5 says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That word husband in verse 6 in Greek, um, it's exclusively and explicitly male. There is no such thing, no matter what the world tells you, there is no such thing as a female husband. Can you believe we have to say that? Paul was even more specific on this point when he is writing to Timothy. And remember, he's writing about ecclesiology. He's writing about the nature, structure, and mission of the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, he says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, this does not mean that a woman can't be a boss. It does not mean that she can't own a company and have male employees. That does not mean that it has nothing to do with that. It doesn't even mean that a woman can't be a college professor. I thank God for that one too. My wife is a college professor. This is exclusively dealing with those who teach and exercise authority in church. This is exclusively dealing with elders. So, so now we have to ask the question, why? Why are elders to be men? Because this is God's order for human society. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. For men to lead, feed, and protect. To provide spiritual and physical covering, protection, and headship. This is the consistent pattern of Scripture. And you know this as well as I do. The world hates this. But the Bible's teaching is very clear. And since I'm laying it on thick today, I've got one more. Every church, this is just a side note, every church or denomination that lets this slide, that ordains women into the pastorate, also eventually accepts and then ordains into ministry homosexuals. Every single one. For some, it hasn't happened yet. Some denominations are still fighting about it and may split over it. But every single time, it leads to that. And at no time in any of the Gospels does Jesus ever capitulate to the sinful expectations of society. It's interesting to point out that some of Jesus' most faithful disciples were the women who stayed with him even to the cross. They stayed with him when the men ran away in fear. It's important to point out that it was the women who went to the tomb that first Easter morning. It's important to point out that it was from the mouth of Mary Magdalene that the disciples found out that the tomb was empty. It's important to know these things. It's important to point out that women were essential to Jesus' ministry. Some even supported him financially. They were independently wealthy, and they were able to support the ministry of, the, of Jesus and the disciples. They were faithful in the ministry of the earliest church. They had important roles in the earliest church. Walk through the book of Acts and look at the women in the church. They were important and vital. This continues even to today. Acts chapter, I mean, Titus chapter 2 gets into this. The importance of women in discipleship, in caring for the church and for helping, 
for, for passing on the faith one to another. But as we look even at the example of Trinity Bible Chapel in Ontario, we look at the difficulties that those elders face in the coming months, difficulties that none of us foresaw even one year ago. As we look at these things, as we look at, at these things that, are, that are, we're coming to believe could easily happen here. One year ago, we never would have thought that these things could happen here. Now, we could see it pretty quickly. As we look at the challenges for the elders that we can see laid out, even in this chapter, we remember that there is nothing new under the sun. And so we can be grateful for the charge that Paul lays out, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, a charge for the men, even of this church specifically today, a charge for your elders and those who will one day be elders, a charge for the men of this church, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you done do be done in love. And so it is with that charge in mind, that charge to the men of this church and specifically to the elders of this church, I would give the rest of the saints of this church this charge. It's from Hebrews chapter 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, and not an account to Washington or to Columbus, an account to God. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now please take this. It is a joy to shepherd this church. There's very little groaning anymore. Um, and so I just want to say thank you for that. Please be praying for your elders. I don't want this sermon to sound too self-serving or self-serving at all, but please be praying for your elders. Be thankful that there are men who are watching out for your souls as those who have to give an account and pray for them. Pray for them, especially Paul uses, the scriptures use the phrase over and over again, as you see the day drawing near. Please continue to pray for the elders of the church as you see the day drawing near. As we gather together and sing and rejoice we can rejoice that we are, there aren't people showing up at our houses, at the elders' houses at 8 o'clock on Sunday night, handing out $10,000 fines. And if we do it again, it's 100000 We can praise God that we are able to continue to meet. Pray for us. Pray for one another. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing those challenges in Ontario and in California and in New York and in Illinois, and other places. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, I am grateful for the elders that... Um, I think of the elders when I was a kid. Those in the church growing up that watched over us and we had no idea what they were facing. We had no idea how you needed to strengthen them and encourage them. I think of uh, these elders, fellow saints uh, from churches like this one, and there are many others, and, and around the world, those have faced death because they gathered together in your name. Lord, I pray that you would continue to protect us, 
But help us to remember that whatever happens in the world, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. That you are, that, that Christ is seated on his throne. That he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Father, remind us that Jesus, with his own flesh and blood, redeemed for himself a people for his own possession. And Father, as we come to the table this morning, Remind us of that truth, that we are yours, that we, are, we belong body and soul. Our, our only hope is that we belong, that we are not our own, but we belong to Jesus Christ, that we've been purchased, that we've been bought with his blood. As we come to the table, Lord, to proclaim this until he comes, we proclaim, come quickly, Lord. We ask for an end to this. We ask for an end to the um, opposition and persecution. But Lord, we know and we can come to you with confidence, knowing that one day we will eat of the marriage supper of the Lamb face to face. That day when there will be no more opposition. That day when there will be no more suffering, no more pain. Father, we long for that day. We wait for that day. Give us strength to make it to that point. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.